get inside here? The more important question, how do we get it out? Join us. You always wanted to see the stars. On behalf of Starfleet, welcome aboard. Uh, what is that? Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, meow meowing at every Kazon bounty hunter he can find. <laughs> and I have a request, Tyler. I would like you to now refer to me as Cam Boots. Cam- okay, <laughs> thank you for that. <laughs> And why would he call me that, folks? It's because we are here to talk about another Star Trek premiere. It's crazy, but we're doing another Star Trek premiere, this time for Star Trek Prodigy, the episode Lost and Found. Yeah, so we're following essentially a a mining colony. Cam, you know I love me my mining colonies here in the Star Trek universe. Um, And uh, these um, indentured child slave labor, (laughs) like... That's dark Star Trek. Very dark for a children's show, especially. But essentially, like, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, a whole bunch of them escape onto a Federation ship that is within this asteroid for some reason. Lots of mysteries planted uh, about. Um, Cam, so, so th- this is a, a premiere where it, it seems as if, like, it, it's very much fully formed in, in a way that a lot of these other premieres were not, mm-hmm. and that. It has a grasp on the tone that it wants to strike, the characters, uh, and what they're like. I have no idea what this show is going to be like week to week. Um, that said, I'm I'm intrigued what it does next. This was not painful to sit through. Uh, there's just some amazing um, cinematic shots. The characters are distinct. Uh, that's the biggest thing for you and I, is whether we dig the characters. Um, I think that they um, are, are on the right track here. It's just so difficult where you have an entire first episode devoted only to world building and you don't really quite know what's going on. And that's not necessarily something that I enjoy with this series. I'm not into the, the mystery box storytelling myself, especially if it's like a family show. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean and that this episode, it's action-packed. It moves, I think, in terms of establishing what at least the vibe of the show is. It's very successful. I was very impressed with you know, a lot of the cinematic shots that I'm sure we'll touch on. But um, it, uh, yeah, it, it's kind of like there's no real depth there. Um, we can talk about characters we like or moments we like, but when we're talking about Caretaker or, um, you know, Emissary, those uh, premieres, there's really some meat to kind of dig into there and talk about, you know, connective issues, or connective tissues, I should say, with um, the Star Trek universe and some of the themes going on. Here, um, we have a setup for an adventure show, and I think it's a largely successful one, but it doesn't have the depth that's maybe exciting for us to go back and forth about. Well, with regards to something like Emissary or Caretaker, they are philosophical questions being raised, and you can go bounce back and forth about this. 
I don't know if, if they actively raise any philosophical questions so much as try to plant the seeds for what seems to be a serialized story moving mm -hmm. forward. So well, I, I agree with you. Yes. Um, that said, there, there are some Star Trek ideas in here. I, I like the idea of a, a prison planet um, in which they make sure that there are no universal translators because I think that is a way that um, these people can control these um, slave children, um, unfortunately. But um, so that's kind of a Star Trek idea, but they don't really dig that deep into it. It's just, it's more, mostly just kind of uh, something used as more of like a, a plot device, a plot mechanic. But, you know, um, yeah, I, I think we're on the same page there. But one of the things that I, I want to grade this on is what it's trying to accomplish, not whether or not it's trying to be, you know, my next favorite film or television series. You know, like, um, it's not trying to be the next Succession or the next Sopranos or the next uh, No Country for Old Men. It's, it's trying to be a family <laughs> show. And yep. so I, I want to grade it on how well it accomplishes all that. Um, you and I, we don't have kids, um, so it, it's tough for us to, like, know with certainty how much, like, a kid would like this. I, I, I think um, it, it seems engaging enough, and it has more of that Star Wars vibe to it uh -huh. that I think, like, a um, a seven to nine-year-old, this is really where it would hit home for at this point. But I also think families could sit down and watch, and I, I th this is not painful to sit through at all. It, it like, really moved out of clip. But it did not have that kind of manic storytelling issues that we mentioned with regards to the first five or six episodes of uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. So, so far this is working on me, but I feel frustrating that I, 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 I wish I could like just binge it and then give like a solid opinion on what the story is adding up to. And that's kind of my frustration with this new era of Star Trek that has so much emphasis on these serialized stories versus the episodic and i think you know when you do something like lower decks where it's more geared towards episodic i felt far more confident about what i thought about that series premiere um you know just over a year and a half ago yeah like i think this um episode it moves well like i thought the introduction of its main character dal was very successful it built the world around him where i was genuinely interested in learning more i like little touches about having a kazon show up and hearing the kazon language there's little nuggets of Trek stuff around that's fun. Obviously, there's a character who's a Tellarite who, with his glasses on, looks a lot like Bebop from the Ninja Turtles. I get it. That yeah. really, yeah, that really jumped out to me. And he has a um, a, like a tool that looks like Mjolnir from Thor. Uh, that was another design. There was a lot of visual designs in this that were, um, uh, some would say homages, and some would say ripping other things off because there was a lot of Star Wars stuff too. You know, we had like a General Grievous character that played oh, yeah. a very prominent villainous role. Um, the whole villain in the tank reminded me of Darth Vader in the tank, or a little bit of the Emperor as well. Uh, a lot of Star Warsy space fantasy storytelling with moments of like visual splendor you know the moment you see the proto star or shots of it flying through space where i'm like that is the star trek vibe but it's almost like they looked at the 70s show and said that would bore any child which they may be correct on i'm not gonna say that they're wrong but um they were like not necessarily confident at least join just jumping off of a pilot who knows what the show will be at this point but it's like we can't quite do Star Trek storytelling. Maybe that's a little too dry for kids. So let's 
kind of do what the Star Wars animated shows do and try to work in nuggets of Trek themes and what have you going forward. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Look, if you're on the ship episode to episode, my suspicion is there'll be more kind of these episodic mission episodes. You know, like, here's our mission this week. Here's our mission that week. I really hope it's not about them just having to run away from the Diviner and Dreadnought, you know, a.k.a. General <laughs> Grievous, every single week. Like, I, I don't like that sort of idea. I want them out there exploring. Um, You know, the, the Diviner said, like, he doesn't want Gwyn to be influenced at all by the Federation. Well, I think we already know that's going to happen. Um, we find out why. Maybe the, the values that, um, as she introduced herself, Hologram Janeway, not Captain Janeway, as she is credited in the credits, but Hologram Janeway, it's going to be imbuing some of that to our characters. And I think that, I, I wonder if those messages, like that's actually going to be the opportunity when we get those kind of Star Trek philosophical ideals and, and debates that we can get going. I think I might have to wait until episode two, but maybe even episode three, because I wonder if, like, episode two is going to be yet another table-setting sort of adventure uh, for these folks before we can really get going with whatever, with whatever like, the show is going to be in its uh, true form. Yeah, I do wonder if episode two is more about the building up the relationship with Janeway and the crew, because the next episode, I assume, will be 22 minutes or so, right? Yes, yes, it will be. Yeah, like, this one is 45, so it has a big advantage in terms of telling a fair amount of story, whereas we're going to cut to these more bite-sized episodes going forward. So it wouldn't surprise me if the next one is 22 minutes of the crew getting to know about Janeway, with, I'm sure, some flashes to, you know, the villains here and there. Um, maybe working on some of the relationships with, you know, Gwyn and Dal a little bit. But it does feel like they'll be probably a little more focused on one specific element, especially for a children's show. You can't be bouncing around too much. Um, I, I did wonder, though, if... And it's so tough to know what this show could be because you have an entire crew that are not Starfleet, which is a, a new thing, which is kind of cool. But I was wondering even if, like, this episode is a little bit of, like, the Firefly premiere, where it's a lot of stuff in terms of table setting, but it's not really that representative of where the show is going to go in the grand scheme of things. And when I have a shot of Dow looking at all the stars, being like, boy, there's so many places to go and kind of trying to pick out where, it makes me wonder if we're going to have more of an episodic show of these characters traveling around these stars with, you know, villains popping in and out. Cam, okay, you're giving me PTSD when you say the words Firefly premiere. Uh, as somebody <laughs> who watched Firefly as it aired week to week back on Fox, uh, it, it they aired the episodes out of order. Oh, so that's right. They had the two-hour premiere that you would have seen on, like, your DVDs. But for somebody like me, they aired that last. And mm -hmm. so the first episode we got is the train job. And it was essentially the studio execs were like, we don't know what this show is going to be week to week. Give us that. And that's what they aired first. So they essentially had to do two pilots. And I watched the train job first, and it was interesting enough for me. There, there's no better thing than, um, you know, uh, Mal Reynolds kicking the guy into the engine. Um, yep. Just kind of giving you kind of a sense of what kind of um, Indiana Jones-like character he's going to be moving forward. That's kind of what sold me on that. But it is kind of like, like I know what you're saying. Like, And, and I think the studio execs at the time, I, I don't agree with them, but I think they had a good point in like, what is this show going to be week to week? And we're not clear on that, although we do have hopes for that. Um, Kim, you brought something up last week with regards to antagonists and that you wanted them to be kind of goofy 
to a certain degree. I don't think they necessarily are giving you what you wanted, but um, are, are you intrigued by this, or do you think they seem a little bit too derivative of the, the Star Wars characters that you mentioned just a few moments ago? Well, they're incredibly derivative. Um, I, I did like as well that Dreadnought has a claw that looks a lot like Dr. Octopus's claw. Like, visually, is very, very, very similar. But I think... A lot is up in the air, honestly, about the Diviner, because I don't know anything about this character. He's still that sort of shadowy emperor figure. Um, so I hope he's not just kind of... I, ho <laughs> I hope he doesn't turn out like the emperor in Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Please, God, don't give me that. But if they can do something interesting or fun, that's cool. But if he's kind of just supreme overlord who's out to cause evil, that's pretty dull. I actually think Dreadnought, though, as much as he's like General Grievous... Um, he is a design that I would have loved as a kid. I think back, and I'm going to date myself now, to the show Captain Power, which was um, <laughs> a phenomenon for maybe one year back in the 80s. And there was a character named Sauron who was this kind of robotic, um, kind of half-man, half-tyrannodon or something like that that flew around, and he looked awesome. And I look at Dreadnought and I go, yeah, like, you know, six or seven-year-old Cam would have loved that character. You begin the toys, right? Oh, hell yeah. Like, I would not be chasing after a lot of the lead character figures, but I would want a Dreadnought figure. Uh, out of the lead character figures, uh, who who would be kind of the uh, the go-to merch that you uh, might invest in if you were like eight or nine still? I think probably Zero would be the one I would buy. Um, definitely not the lead characters. It would be kind of one that would look stranger. So maybe, maybe Rock Talk. Um, by the way, uh, no points for a creative name there. But um, yeah, it would be a character that would look more alien or just really cool. But I, I think probably Zero, because I think that design is awesome. And you know, if it's an action figure, the sort of swirling energy in the middle there, they're going to do some sort of cool effect with the toy. Yeah, uh, she's a rock and she talks. Uh, but mm -hmm. I'm with you. Uh, I I'd probably buy Rock Talk as a toy if I was in the demographic. And you know what? Um, I might even buy it right now once the merch is released. Uh, I want to go back to something you said uh, a moment ago, though. But um, if you're getting kind of like Emperor Palpatine vibes uh, from uh, Return of Skywalker in uh, this hmm. one, um, does that mean by the end of the series, Gwyn is going to take Janeway's name? Oh, oh, good call. Well, there you go, man. We have to wait and see because, like, <laughs> the Diviner has to do some real heavy lifting to redeem himself, even after just one episode, <laughs> to be any sort of sympathetic character that we would want to see Gwyn uh, reunite with. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm curious how much they really plan to delve into this um, seemingly quite tortured um, dynamic between these two characters in a children's show. Yeah. Um, so, okay, you mentioned kind of the appearance uh, of... Uh, the Protostar, proto like the debut of it. Um, what do you think of the ship's design, both the exterior and the interior? I thought it actually worked really well. I mean, exterior for the most part, because we've seen the bridge. I think the bridge looks really cool, really snazzy. I think it's bright and has an optimistic vibe. I think kids will like. But you and I, I think in just like a week or two ago, we're talking about like how the Discovery ship doesn't really feel that memorable yet. It doesn't have those sort of grand shots of it flying through space and in this episode alone just the first reveal of the protostar followed by just the moments of it flying through space or even through that you know trying to escape the prison i was like this ship really gives off a really terrific vibe 
it feels like they put a lot of extra effort into making it matter, maybe because they want to grab the kid viewers on the first go, but it was effective for me too. I've always envisioned kind of a bridge design that would incorporate stairs in some way. And I really think that the design that we got here is just magnificent. I, I absolutely love the bridge. I think the uh, protostar itself, the exterior is gorgeous. One thing that, that, that is one of those mysteries that they planted though, is like this uh, Starfleet vessel somehow ends up in the Delta Quadrant. There's a Tellarite hmm. in this uh, children's mining prison. <laughs> <laughs> for some reason as well um so there are some mysteries though but like um if you look at the credits like you know that at the end of it it is kind of a little counterintuitive and they had the um opening credits at the very end of the series premiere and it's very obvious that you can see kind of a third nacelle coming out of the the very back of the protostar mm-hmm. um it kind of looks like uh, it's doing a bit of a number two, um, if I uh, had to oh. be uh, so rude. But um, but I, I wonder if that's indicative of its uh, travel capacity. If maybe it's just a, a faster kind of starship, one capable of getting to the Delta Quadrant in a much faster period of time, that might explain, hey, um, that's why there's a, a Janeway component to a certain degree. Um, not for any certain story purposes, but uh, maybe the, uh, the builders of this NX-class ship that or nx registered ship uh they were like uh yeah you know uh remember that janeway uh person um she was leading them out of the delta quadrant if this one's capable of going there we can program this kind of uh command hologram inside they're like i I wonder if there's like clues we can pick up just based on what they're planting but i don't like you and i are really bad at guessing Mm -hmm. these kinds of things like we're always off Uh, there's always reddit detectives that are so much more diligent than we are I don't want to watch the show week to week thinking, you know, like, oh, how closely should I be paying attention to this potential clue? Like, that that's not what I really enjoy from absorbing a television series week to week. But I also feel like the mystery has to be very simple, right? Because it's for a, ch- you know, child audience. So it has to be something that like a eight-year-old is going to be able to go, oh, of course. So I feel like it should be the sort of thing that we could logic out very simply but i can't like i feel like my predictions would just be wrong well it's going to be quite embarrassing uh in that like we'll have eight-year-olds figure it out before we do cam (laughs) that would be amazing and it seems very likely um yeah like i think in terms of just working in the trekkiness I i hope they you know use this episode the way you want do your kind of star wars action episode but kind of as we go into space sort of open up a little more of the Trek vibe. I'm hoping they have that optimism and just that sort of sense of discovery because I think, honestly, a kid show would benefit from just hopping around to various planets that are really interesting. And you see here, they're taking advantage of the animation. You know, you look at the characters like Rock Talk or Murph. These are aliens that are the sort of thing you would have seen in the 70s animated show where they are not limited by the restraints of live action. So they can be whatever you want them to be. And I think you could have a lot of visually imaginative stuff of kids going, you know, these, you know, lead characters here going to planets and discovering really vibrant, interesting life forms. I think you want to have that element, that uh, planetary exploration as a key element within the series. If the goal is to, graduate a lot of these child viewers into the non-animated series you know and like that's where a lot of the planetary exploration is going to go on um unless you're star trek discovery or star trek picard (laughs) yeah (laughs) now here's a question for you 
this is a show pitched to children. The, all the interviews that the creators are giving these days are about how it's important for them to draw in the next generation of Star Trek fans. This is a show with uh, no real Starfleet characters. Um, other than the Tellarite and the Medusin, mostly all new aliens. What is important to establish on this show for children in terms of connecting to the larger world of Star Trek? Like, what's really important? I think that's why the Janeway character is going to be so, so significant towards the series. I think that it's going to be her teaching these children that grew up under brutal conditions, like very brutal conditions, like um, a set of values that are altruistic in nature, that strive to do better, not necessarily individualistic, you know, like my needs first. And I think... Um, the idea that always stuck with me with Star Trek is like, we can always do better. We can always strive to be the better person in these tough situations. And I, I think that's going to be kind of the thing. And, and honestly, that's kind of what like is ingrained into your head a lot, you know, when you're in class mm -hmm. and that's, uh, it starts to slowly sap away as you get older and older, but um, hopefully <laughs> that's what I, I think a lot of these kids take away with them as they watch the series week to week. And I think having those morals are really important for kids' entertainment because I'm from the era where um, a TV show that was on the air could pretty much just be a toy commercial, which is what, you know, Masters of the Universe or G.I. Joe were. Um, and so the idea of Star Trek communicating those values, I think, is important and would actually give parents something to have some confidence in in terms of sitting their kids down in front of it. But also, you know, jumping off of that in terms of, you know, established elements of Star Trek isn't important in terms of on a more superficial level, do they need to communicate, say, what Vulcans are or what Klingons are, do you think, on this show? Do you think they would be doing that through, say, holodeck adventures, through some sort of, like, high school or junior high school class that uh, Hologram Janeway teaches and has view screens up? Or, you know, because if you're on another side of the galaxy and mm -hmm. you want to kind of imbue the mythology of Star Trek to what would be... Um, new viewers, uh, we're, we're talking about the, the children viewers, you know, like, I, I, I think you're right. I, I think um, you need to get a lot of those classic Star Trek aliens in there. Yeah, like, I don't think you need to go crazy. They don't need lessons on some of the more obscure ones, but it feels like just some of the fundamentals, Klingons, Vulcans, those are the two that really jump to the forefront of my mind. Um, maybe the Borg in some way, but the Delta Quadrant, rules out those sort of encounters largely. I mean, you can always write the episode where Vulcans went through a wormhole and wound up there. But um, I, I just find it more interesting in the regard of setting the show in the Delta Quadrant because it sort of seals itself off in some ways, in some narrative ways, from what is sort of the established iconography of Star Trek. Well, I think it's going to be Vidians chasing after these uh, young people uh, nonstop week to week and, and being successful at it. I am really interested to see how they exploit the aliens from Voyager because we had a Kazon here. Just the idea of dropping in a random Kazon, just I enjoyed that. It was a sort of fun thing that another Star Trek show probably wouldn't do. But here, hey, there's going to be like a six-year-old somewhere that's going to have an encounter with a Kazon right up front. Yeah, maybe it was that Kazon that Aaron Eisenberg played about 25 years ago. <laughs> All grown up now. That would be amazing. Um, I am totally down for that connection. I also thought it was really cool of this show to introduce a main character who's a Medusin. And the Medusins were introduced in the episode, Is There in Truth No Beauty? from the original series. Not really one of the most well-remembered episodes, 
But I think they're doing something really smart here, which is take a character that has a really vi- you know strong visual design. There's a gimmick to that character where if you gaze upon them, you know, you'll go mad. So right there, a kid can understand that in a sentence. But we get to dig into Star Trek mythology and lore through an alien species we haven't done a lot with, and that I would be shocked if the other shows were fighting to use themselves. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because, uh, look, I, I also like the fact that they established Zero as kind of a, a, an, a powerful alien, but not necessarily perfect or all-knowing. You know, mm-hmm. um, Zero can't fly the ship. Uh, when Del says, go, Zero, go, stops, says, thanks, go me. You know, like a, a little <laughs> bit slow to a certain degree. So I, I think it's interesting that they, like, like I, it's a little bit like barfy when like you try to make all your characters just like absolutely perfect, you know? And so like, it is good if they are, if they have blind spots, I should say. And I think um, it'd be fun to watch these characters. Look, Cam, if you create a show in which I like the characters, I, I can stick it out, um, even if there's some elements that I don't like. And I think the thing is, is like a, a lot of shows um, get into trouble if your characters are just like continuously like blank slates and they're just used to further the plot mechanics and you don't really care what happens next to them or you don't get little digressions or, or pieces of their personality that make them pop out. All of the main characters pop out to me, and I think that's like a, a pretty impressive thing to do within like a forty-five minute premiere. Do you think that because it's a children's show, you have to like the idea of just building an episode that's mythology-driven with characters that are vaguely sketched in? Because don't worry, it's all going to work out throughout the season. You are robbed of that ability because with kids, like you want to hit them with something they're going to understand right out the gate. Travis Mayweather must have wished he was cast uh, for a children's show at, at this point then, right? Well, we could always get him showing up on this show. You never know, right? Still an ensign 250 years later. <laughs> that would be so sad. <laughs> uh, uh, what'd you think of the combat design? Oh, I thought it was pretty cool. Um, I would like to see it, though, in a real-world replica. Because, you know, it's the difference animation to live. I would like to just see what it looks like to have a physical one, like, in my hand. Yeah, you know me, I always like getting these uh, com badges. Uh, I like, it seems super simple, but I even like the one that we see in Lower Deck. So I, I know that the creators of all these respective series, they're having a lot of fun, like, with these com badge designs. We're going to get some uh, some new ones with uh, Strange New Worlds as well. And um, it, they're not going to just be kind of replicas of the ones that we saw in uh, Season 2 of Discovery on the Constitution-class Starsh- uh, Starship Enterprise. So, yeah, I look, I... I think they're doing like a lot of cool visual stuff with the show. It, like you and I were kind of wondering, like, would this look um, more like Pixar or more like Veggie Tales? And I appreciate how cinematic it looks. Like this show is not cheap. You can tell, like, it, like they put a lot of big dollars into making sure that the animation is pretty darn good looking here. Yeah, there was a couple character face shots that I thought were a little awkward, but in terms of the action and stuff, which to kids is really going to matter a lot. It was very, very effective. And I honestly have to give them a lot of points for the action sequence staging, which I thought was genuinely pretty well done and had building momentum. And there was setups and payoffs going on within the action sequence. Like we've watched a lot of action scenes in these live action Trek shows that have fallen flat. And I actually thought just in terms of designing action sequences, this premiere was pretty darn strong in a way I just genuinely never expected to appreciate. 
Yeah, I usually get really bored during action sequences. This is not the case here either. So, uh, look, I, I I thought the directing was very good, and I think they, they're tapping into something. I think I mentioned it a few weeks ago, though, but I, I uh, based on when they had the initial um, uh, opening credits that were released uh, early, and the way that they're directing the ship in that, like, it is from, like, a far distance rather than, like, these, like, microscopic close-ups that we're so used to, I think it's kind of illuminating kind of the, that Star Trek um, visual universe in a way that we haven't really seen before. The, the last time that I really remember them tapping into this is in Star Trek Beyond with the warp effect that you would see it at a distance. And Justin Lin really tapped into something very interesting there. I wonder if they took some inspiration from that because, it, it, look... The majesty of space looks that much more majestic when you see how small the ship is. And also the ship just looks that much more mysterious and enchanting to a certain degree. And we're not used to seeing Star Trek uh, ships filmed at like this this far distance either. So it's kind of novel for us too. Yeah, it had some um, like um, CG zooms going on too that reminded me a lot of the cinematography of the ship flying through space uh, through the JJ movies as well. So it does seem like they were borrowing from the visual design there, but in a way that captures the grandeur of the ship, but also gives you a sense of just the immensity of the space around it. And to a young kid, you want to capture that sense of wonder very quickly. And I think it really succeeded. Like, honestly, this show I thought was incredibly impressive just from a visual design sense in terms of communicating the wonder of Star Trek. and something that we have seen, uh, I, I don't think, has Picard ever done it? Um, you know, Discovery's had some good moments, but it's not the sort of thing that they specialize in. Whereas I feel like this show, no matter what I think of it week to week, when I tune in for episodes, I'm going to see some really astonishing ship shots. I'm kind of offended that you are so quick to dismiss robot demons from an alternate dimension as featured in Star Trek Picard. <laughs> Is there a single grand ship moment in Picard you can think of? Um. Well... It's La Serena that we're following. Um, actually, yes, one. Uh, do you remember we see, yeah, spoiler alert, fast forward 30 seconds, whatever. We see the Borg cube uh, that has crash landed on the planet. Like that actually looked uh, quite amazing to me. Oh, good one. Um, beyond that, nothing really. The only one that pops to mind for me is also not La Serena, but it's the um, vintage Romulan ship showing up yes, like i thought yes. there was a good shot of that emerging where i was like oh that's pretty cool but it's pretty damning that we have nothing particularly kind to say about la serena uh in terms of the depiction on the show <laughs> yeah well you know it's interesting so on my i guess technically it would have been the third time i watched picard i thought the uh, la serena popped a lot more than those initial viewings so i've kind of come around a little bit more on the ship design i can actually probably be better at drawing it on a napkin than i was that first time that i watched it so hmm. i you know I, I i wish they'd do more interesting stuff with that and i also don't think the warp effect is very good on star trek picard either um so kim I, I want to go talk about the Universal Translators. And there, and I wanted to kind of segue into a couple moments that didn't quite work for me, though. But um, we, we have this Universal Translator that apparently has the ability to give Romulans Irish accents if they so desire. <laughs> um, and in, in Rock Talk's uh, case, you know, um, she had like this gravelly voice. But as soon as it uh, the translator is going, she has kind of like the, this uh, young girl's voice. So I don't exactly know 
how the universal translator works at all but um there's a moment in there that i i just kind of like it, it it stuck out like a thor a sore thumb because it, it's actually kind of bad writing in that remember when we first hear rock talk's voice and she immediately covers her mouth mm -hmm. that that's the audience reacting to her voice sounding very different through the translator than that gravelly voice without the translator it's not her reacting to her own voice because she immediately exclaims i can understand you she already knows what she sounds like and, and so it, it's a moment meant for the audience not for her so it doesn't actually make sense like that's just kind of bad writing there and, and the other thing that that's uh, I, I thought was bad writing was um that uh cat boots cahoots gag there <laughs> because yeah whatever cahoots means in dal's language i guess it would have to sound almost exactly like cat boots does in english like that is a giant coincidence like like that joke just does not translates uh no pun intended no although watch like cat boots is going to become the joke that storms all of uh the young schools around the world and will be like well, apparently it worked for children, but uh, yeah, I mean, I did, I thought that was a bit of a stretch in terms of a funny joke on a kid's show. I was like, okay, like I don't think that would have worked for me at the age of eight. Um, the um, Universal Translator thing, I, I agree, it's based entirely on the audience, not because Dow would just hear the voice as opposed to it being something out loud that someone would react to. It felt like the sort of moment that was being written for the child viewer as opposed to the person that's paying attention to star trek logic but it also should have just been dal reacting to rock talk's sure. voice it should not have been rock talk reacting to her own voice and yeah. then reacting to her own voice and then exclaiming after dal already said two sentences i can understand you she only said that after she heard her own voice so that's yeah i i know i'm really digging into like kind of the <laughs> The, the, the minutiae here so yeah and i know it ultimately doesn't matter but there's two moments that kind of stuck out to me that i was just like ah, you could have reframed that in a way that makes sense and i get it, it it's it's kids uh so kim do you think families would sit down and watch this together as a unit do you think it would make more sense for kids to just kind of discover it on their own via nickelodeon or, or it's tough for us to kind of tell but what might you think I think families, it would work for. I mean, if, you know, if it's parents that don't like Star Trek or have no interest in watching Star Trek, then I wouldn't be forcing the parents to, to sit through it. But if you had, you know, kids and you were a Star Trek fan, I actually think this show is, at least judging from this one episode, quite successful in creating something that as an adult would not be torture to sit through with your kids. If you were a Star Trek fan, you want to show them this, I think you'd be entertained and there'd be bits for you to kind of you know, get some amusement out of in terms of larger canon. You know, a lot of the dialogue is very kid-oriented. There's not a lot of quotable lines that I walked away going like, oh man, that really made me laugh, or that was a really brilliant line. But it has an energy, and it really does zip by that I think an adult would be, it would be very painless for them to sit through. Because I think that's one thing you hear from parents over and over again, is like their kids will latch on to some animated show or movie or whatever, live action, either way. But it's something that's like unbearable for an adult to sit through. And I don't think this is what that is. 
Yeah, this is not like Caillou, which was more for like the two or three year olds. Um, but I was thinking about this as I watch it. What if they like going in, we didn't know exactly what age that they were aiming at or whether it'd be more family oriented versus for like four year olds or what have you. But I was thinking like what if they wanted to do something more in the vein of the animated series or something geared more towards like, you know, like the, the Peppa Pig sort of crowd. And it kind of struck me like. I think the easiest thing might just be very similar with what they were doing with the animated series, but have like young data in which it's uh, data's just uh, reactivated and he's learning things at an even more basic level than when he saw him in Encounter at Farpoint. I don't think it would be hard to get Brent Spiner to come back and do the voice uh, for a bunch of episodes. I think the Data character would work very well with uh, very young audiences. And I think there's enough of a curiosity factor that parents would maybe sit and watch an episode with you know their two or three-year-olds, even if it's not necessarily going to be as gripping as something like um, like Prodigy, for example. Yeah, I think that's actually a really smart idea. And Data is a character that would connect with kids. And you could work in, you know, guest appearances. Look, Jonathan Frakes or Marina Sirtis would swing by. I think LeVar Burton would probably be very happy to do it as well, given all his work with Reading Rainbow to take part in a children's show. And you could have things like, you know, Jordy and Data doing their Sherlock Holmes stuff. Um, and I would, you know, animate it with a more like young kid vibe. Like I look at this show, um, Prodigy, and I go, the animation style seems very like, um, you know, Star Wars, Clone Wars, or, um, you know, the Bad Bunch kind of look where it's aiming a little bit older, but I think like a, you know, very young skewing data show, like for four-year-olds or something with like learning lessons. I think that could really work. Yeah, um, it's my idea. So I totally agree. Sure, um. <laughs> yeah, and maybe in that show you won't have characters referring to other ones as rebel fighters. <laughs> uh, I don't know why this image has sprung to me um, all of a sudden, but I was thinking when you were suggesting LeVar Burton come back, I was like, they cannot recreate the image. Uh, remember that episode that they thought that uh, LaForge had died and then they had his corpse kind of on that slab as they were examining it? Does that ring a bell? Oh, um, like I'm thinking of... The next phase where they thought he was dead but now i'm okay now i'm having to think back it wasn't the one where he mutated into an alien was it i don't think so it was more like maybe an alt reality sort of deal um you know um I, I'm, I'm it's gonna come to me soon but I, I just remember his um body laying on the slab and the only thing covering him up was like essentially a face cloth <laughs> I was just like, uh, was it the producer's idea or LeVar Burton's idea? <laughs> I'm just like, um, props for agreeing to do that anyway, uh, LeVar Burton. But you can't do that on the four-year-old uh, show if that's going to be your uh, next appearance. <laughs> I know exactly what you're talking about. And I can't remember what that's from. You know what? It's actually from uh, last year's Halloween costume that I did. Because so. <laughs> in my rewatch, I started in season three. And I've just finished season five, so it's definitely it. Whatever that episode is, it doesn't fall in there. So uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, well, maybe it's something I just completely made up in my head, and you're uh, <laughs> leeching onto that uh, picture as well. Maybe it's all that fan art you showed me. Maybe that's what I'm thinking about. <laughs> now I'm just confused. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so, uh, Cam, uh, maybe a couple of things um, that. 
uh, we'll talk about uh, about kind of plans moving forward for uh, the podcast, at least over uh, for the next few weeks. Um, but before we do that, I, I figured we want to have kind of a conversation about Dune, which we saw after we recorded last week's episode. But any final thoughts on Prodigy before we have a little to- Dune conversation? Yeah, I genuinely enjoyed it. I was encouraged to see where we're going to go. I mean, I'll be curious when we reach the end of the 10 episodes, if I feel like, well, this is a show I can't wait to continue with, or if it's just kind of a a little bit of a novelty. But as a pilot, this was a pretty strong Star Trek pilot in terms of establishing your tone and your vibe. So I'm curious. I don't know that it'll be one of my favorite Star Trek shows, but I'm interested to see what it becomes over the course of these 10. Yeah, I liked it. It seemed fully formed in a way we don't often see with premieres. Uh, it's going to be episodes two, three, that be a bit of a litmus test to kind of figure out what the show is trying to do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. If it's just kind of these wacky adventures week to week, I'm down for it. I like the characters. Um, as you said, it's probably not going to be my favorite Trek of all time, but um, I don't know. Uh, people often compare me to an eight-year-old, so it might just be... <laughs> But you never know, right? Because, you know, you look at Picard, which in theory should be probably your favorite show, and it didn't really connect off that first season. So, like, maybe this will have the advantage, like Lower Decks did, of being the show that you, um, you know, the the show that can kind of get by without interference with the higher-ups and can be its own unique, cool thing. Who knows, right? Yeah. Let's look forward to those merch opportunities in the meantime. That's right. Merch, not Murph. (laughs) so cam last week we went and saw dune and um i my my overall thoughts is like i I found it visually enchanting there were some interesting uh performances i am always a fan of whatever denis villeneuve does i couldn't help but be kind of sucked into whatever was going on on the screen but honestly movie just kind of left me cold like i didn't quite care what was going to happen next and yet we see it's getting like overwhelmingly positive um, responses from people um i didn't quite connect it that way but i'm looking forward to dune 2 which has been confirmed um i don't know I, like i feel mixed on this movie even though I, I i liked it um but it just i i guess i felt a little disappointed i i had higher expectations going in and i felt that same way like the two movies i was looking forward to most this year were many saints of newark and dune and both those left me a little underwhelmed to a certain degree but what's your takeaway after seeing dune well also you should add your third was venom let there be carnage so and i was blown away go. I was, well, yeah. no no i was blown away by <laughs> by uh let there be carnage how dare you <laughs> Yeah, with me, I guess my relationship to the Dune property, we, you know, I've never read the book. Um, so I know there's a lot of like real hard sci-fi fans out there who have a great love for Dune. So believe me, uh, guys, I'm not speaking directly to you. You have your own relationship with this franchise. For me, I had just seen the David Lynch film and I really did not like it. But that movie was like incoherent. And to someone who had no knowledge of Dune lore, I just found it impossibly frustrating to sit through. I actually think this version, this, you know, part one, did a fantastic job of establishing the mythology and the characters in a way that I could grasp, where I walked out and would be able to get a sense of where they were, who they were, where they could be going, and how this might continue on in part two. I did not have that after the David Lynch film. I was so confused. So in that regard, I appreciated what this one did. And as you said, visually, 
incredible. I uh, very much regret the fact we didn't get to see it our first time in IMAX or, you know, one of the top formats, because I think it really would have delivered on that front. But just in terms of Villeneuve's visuals, you know he can do this stuff. We've seen Arrival. We've seen Blade Runner 2049. But this felt like world building on a scale and with an attention to detail that you know, you can look at what, say, like Lucas was trying to do in the Star Wars prequels or even the Star Wars sequel trilogy. And it's impressive in its own way, but it has glitchy moments where you're getting bad CG or moments that kind of pull you out of it. And I thought top to bottom, the art direction and production design on Dune was so impeccable. The effects so astonishing that you kind of wonder why more movies can't do this. But like you... um, I also walked out with a very kind of cold sense of the characters. I didn't have an emotional connection to really anything that happened in the entire movie. So it was a very passive viewing experience of me being kind of awed by the sights and sounds, but sort of removed from the narrative and sort of being swept up in it, which is frustrating for a movie like this, where I think when you look at the Hollywood epics, you know, whether it's stuff like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Ben-Hur or whatever, all of these things could always sweep me up in sort of the, you know, the world that they were happening in. This movie, I felt very removed from it in a frustrating way. That said, uh, you and I are a little bit more mixed, even though if you go into my letterbox, I, I gave it three and a half stars because I, I still felt like kind of gripped by just the visuals, if if nothing else. But um, I'm determined to go see this in theaters again because this is one of the worst theater experiences I've ever had in hmm. which... Um, Cam, uh, you, you tell me if I'm exaggerating it, uh, about anything, but we're sitting like fairly close to a guy that won't stop blowing his nose throughout this. Um, there's also a woman sitting uh, close to us who every time like an actor she recognized came on screen, uh, she would go, ooh, as if it was like like uh, some sort of giant surprise. And then people would not stop walking up and down the aisles. Uh, there's one guy that's, um, uh, we, we counted, he walked up and down the aisle like four times throughout the uh, the two hour plus run, which was, and he wasn't the only one, like it was nonstop. But one of the other big problems though, is I plop myself down into my seat, and these are actually smaller than usual seats, and I'm wearing like my big denim Sherpa jacket. And I realized quite quickly that um, it is very hot, like extremely hot in this uh, packed theater. And um, I start sweating and I'm actually a little parched. And I realize if I take my jacket off, everything in my pockets, like my phone, my glasses or my um, keys, my AirPods, they're all going to spill out of my pockets onto the, the dirty floor there. So I just had to sit there and bear with it. It took about 90 minutes until like the AC started to uh, kick in. It, it was just like a, a terrible viewing experience for me, like just one of the worst I've ever had. And I wonder how much my experience of Dune itself would, would change if um, some of those other external factors weren't um, bothering me as, as much. I wasn't uh, too just, I didn't really hear the people sniffling or whatever, that woman. I, I didn't it, hear that it at all. It wasn't sniffling. Did... It was nose blowing. I apparently was able to tune it out, but, um, tune it out. Yeah. You're yeah, doing it, it out. out. Doing yeah. it out. <laughs> the, I did see, you know, the people moving up and down as for heat. I tend to not wear, I just wear like a t-shirt and vest in kind of cold weather anyway. So it didn't really phase me. Um, but in terms of just a presentation at a theater, um, on a technical level, it was probably not at the bar that I should have attended in terms of seeing Dune. 
maybe it would have been completely acceptable for an art house film or something like that. But for Dune, I was kind of kicking myself over that. Well, speaking of which, I mean, a few days later, you and I went and saw the French Dispatch at another uh, movie theater that would have been of lesser quality than the one that we saw Dune. And that that seemed like a totally fine experience. Like I I didn't need like um, IMAX or uh, AVX or anything like those big special screens. And um, it's very uh, French Dispatch is very much a visually oriented film, but I, I didn't quite feel as if I was missing out on anything the way that I did that Dune big screen experience. Yeah, and also Dune, I think a lot of it is driven by the sound of the movie too. And so like to get the full sound experience, find the most state-of-the-art theater you can, I would probably recommend. Yeah. So okay, moving forward, it'll be a big, you know, rest of the year for us. I, 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 I'd like to keep kind of surprises abound in terms of what's coming up next. I think you and I kind of decided like, we'll let the episodes of Prodigy either build up, you know, like maybe three, four episodes at a time, or else for the next few weeks, we might just do, I don't know, like uh, chat about the latest episode for like five or 10 minutes um, at the end. Like we might do that sort of format. Uh, we, we like Prodigy. I just don't know if we can do, you know, 45 minute discussions uh, every single week like we would do with the other series. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we did the review of this episode this was a 45 minute episode i don't know that the 22 minute episodes are going to give us enough fodder to really fill out the length of a podcast <laughs> yeah yeah i agree so um so yeah uh that said uh do we want to discuss what we'll be doing um next week then sir yeah go for it Re- okay. make the uh, reveal well it is actually a pretty big darn awesome anniversary it is the 30th anniversary of trials and tribulations one of my all-time favorite deep space nine episodes the last time i saw it it was during a viewing in las vegas in front of the what thousands of people inside the big las vegas star trek convention there that was awesome it was followed up by a panel uh, with people behind the scenes explaining how just the technical stuff worked um I, I, I can't wait to kind of reflect on this uh, over the 30 years and how... <laughs> okay, the reason that episode premiered 30 years ago is it was celebrating the 30th um, anniversary of Star Trek. And, and so to mm-hmm. think that it's now... I am off by five years, Cam. I'm realizing that. It's actually the 25th anniversary of Trials and <laughs> Tribulations. But um, you know me. I, I'm as smart as an eight-year-old, so that's why it, it takes me a little bit to get my numbers correct. But um, it's still kind of a monumental anniversary, thinking it's been 25 years since Trials and Tribulations. So I, I'm pumped to do a review of this one um, next week. Yeah, it's an episode we've talked you know, many times on the show about, but I think... We're going to have some new insights and more of a deep dive just on this one specific episode that as DS9 gets further and further away in the rearview mirror, um, it's one that looms very large over that show. And I think it's something we've talked about where DS9 was like one of the most fun shows and it's typically regarded as the dark show. But this episode shows how DS9 could be the most fun Star Trek show on the air. I'm down for that. So, yeah, we look forward to that. And, uh, like, uh, listeners, Cam and I, we were going over the calendar for the next few weeks uh, into December. 
it's going to be a lot of great episodes uh, that we have planned for the podcast, like a lot of real fun, cool topics. Um, we're kind of, we're even looking forward to doing like Discovery Season 4, just uh, maybe morbid curiosity more than just genuine anticipation, but um, it's going to be, uh, we also have the Prodigy stuff coming up and uh, some other cool episode ideas that we have swimming about, so yeah, the, the, the rest of the year is going to be a lot of fun for Subspace, so uh, keep tuning in, and folks, it's a free podcast. Like, we're begging you, just go out, give us five stars on all your podcatchers. It just helps us uh, in the algorithms. More people will find it. More people can become part of the subspace community. We, we, uh, all, it, it's free. That's all we ask you to do. Just uh, give, give us some uh, good ratings. That's all. And also, just with having so much Star Trek content on the air now, we have so many more options in terms of what we can do week to week, where we can pop in, give reviews of new Trek, pop over, do something like Trials and Tribulations or some other random topic, and then have Discovery coming back. And it's just going to, I think, uh, give us a, a, some you know creative juice here to bounce around and do fun things. Well, think about it. It's going to be very, very busy um, from here until... I don't know, the next nine months, we're going to have uh, Prodigy and Discovery running concurrently. Um, that's first time we've had Star Trek series running concurrently since uh, Voyager Deep Space Nine. You know, that was um, about uh, 25 years ago or uh, maybe uh, 23 years ago. So um, th- and then after that, uh, we're going to have, you know, Picard, Strange New Worlds, and then that will presumably bring us quite close to Lower Decks uh, as well. And Cam, uh, fingers crossed, that Section 31 uh, spinoff that you've been yearning for, <laughs> it, it'll be uh, just down the road uh, soon enough, too. God willing. I'm just curious, did it feel like kind of crazy to you to sit down to watch the Lost and Found and just reflect on the fact this is the fourth Star Trek premiere, um, you know, series pilot that we've covered like in very little time like it's pretty crazy i i I literally was thinking about that yesterday especially knowing that strange new worlds is on its way it'll be like five new series in five years that that is just insane i nothing i i could have suspected that we would get when we started this podcast and we're talking about kind of like how star trek was in kind of uh this no man's land and we didn't think we would get to see anything um for you know many years to come now we've got five series in five years um it's just um movies are in the no man's land when it comes to star trek at this point yeah well there was the uh recent interview with the new head of um of uh paramount and he was uh, t- uh brian robbins and he was saying that he wants to focus on star trek movies and maybe even an animated movie so let's get that figured out folks and uh that could be exciting as well but no it is crazy just considering how many premieres we've now we've covered and even just like the launch of um star trek uh, short treks which again you know you can say what you will about the quality of some of the short treks but it was pretty weird for us to be sitting down just to review the first ever short trek being like what is this <laughs> oh well, i are you kind of bummed that we haven't had any short treks uh, in quite some time um sort of yes because i like the experimental nature of them some yeah. of them kind of fell flat with us but i like seeing things like ephraim and dot but i also feel like uh, i think in the eyes of the people making them to a degree it was kind of like content for um, you know, Paramount Plus slash CBS All Access and not necessarily what they were looking at as their end game, which is what they have now with all these actually fully fleshed out shows on the air, keeping people hooked. So I don't know if there's a reason to make short treks anymore with so much going on, but I kind of would like to see the odd one every now and again. 
I wonder if maybe they just get pitches from writers and saying like, look, I've got a 15 minutes uh, fully self-contained episode idea. Maybe just let, let's have a little fun here. And uh, maybe they'll give them uh, a couple hundred thousand dollars to make something on an existing set. I don't know. Maybe that's uh, what we'll get, um, you know, section 31, the short trek. <laughs> if that's all it is, a short trek, uh, I, I can totally, totally uh, deal with that. That's no problem with me. Like, uh, I like Michelle Yeoh. I just, I, I, I don't want to see a section 31 spinoff. I, zero interest. It would be amazing if that was their long con. Talk about um, the Section 31 spinoff for years and years and years and then build up to one short trek. <laughs> I just keep thinking about how like uh, everyone's begging, begging, begging for a Strange New Worlds uh, series or, or like a Captain Pike spinoff and they give it to us. It, it's, it, it's kind of damning that like they had the Section 31 series planned long before any Pike spinoff, and uh, nobody's been begging for it, and we really haven't heard much about it in quite some time. And the more that the distance continues onwards from, you know, Michelle Yeoh leaving Discovery, I don't know that this show's going to have much of a life if it's, like, coming out in, like, two years. Maybe she goes back in time to Strange New Worlds, and that's how she gets to play that character again. She likes Giorgio quite a bit, you know. Like uh, she was the one that even, you know, suggested they do like a a Giorgio spinoff. You know, look, if I was a guest actress on a series, I'd be like, yes, give me my own spinoff in which I'm the lead. Who wouldn't do that? But um, I'd rather, I just much rather watch a, a Prime Universe Giorgio on the Shenjo doing like a prequel or something like that. Like that would be a way more fun series to me, anyway. Well, if they want to get experimental with some of their movies, like maybe they should do a Shenzo movie starring Michelle Yeoh for their streaming network. Yeah, you know that's uh, I, I'm like I, I keep going back to how <laughs> one of my favorite moments in the uh, Discovery series premiere was when like they were tasked with fixing a broken relay, and it's like <laughs> that's that's Star Trek to me though. It's like let's go fix things and, and see what kind of um, strange adventures might unfold versus the Red Angel. We, we have to chase after <laughs> the Red Angel, or what is the burn, or what we'll find out in just a month's time or, or less than a month's time is gravitational anomaly, gravity. And it's kind of like, eh, whatever. Well, don't worry. Burnham's going to solve it. <laughs> she always does. That's and right. she'll cry. I, do you think she'll cry in the uh, season premiere, Cam? Oh, in the season premiere, I'm going to say no, because I have a hard time imagining. Oh, no, I don't think so. I'm going to bet no, and we'll have to see how it shapes out. But I think they have to kind of push the narrative a little bit to get back to a moment i don't know that they left us in a place at the end of season three that would indicate that would be coming quickly what if they don't have the star-based gelato she was promised and the season finale of season three then i lose the bet yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but she is gonna cry at least once or twice or four or five times this season right guaranteed i can absolutely promise that okay well yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Or as Tyler said, give us a five-star rating on whatever podcast service you are getting your podcasts from. It would very much be appreciated. Tyler, as you said, we're going to cover Trials and Tribulations next week. I think that's going to be a lot of fun. 
I can't wait. Uh, Cam, where can we find you on Twitter? Yes, you can find me at Cam. V is in Vamcut, which was a note I made that I don't know what it means. Smith. That is the species that Gwyn and the Diviner of, and I think it's something like, uh, whatever the future of our people hold, it will be up to you. And then they say that there's nothing truthful about that mission. I don't know. But uh, Vamcant it is. Vamcant it is. And you can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-O-N. N as in never too late to visit a mining colony. Okay, so till next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.